Welcome to Sanctus Church Online. We're so glad that you're joining us here today. Maybe you belong to our church and you're in a living room or maybe you're with your connect group. So we want to welcome you at this moment. Uh, maybe you're attending online and actually you're from another church and your church wasn't able to provide an online option for you. So we want to say you are most welcome as our brothers and sisters in Jesus. Maybe you're just checking out church for the first time. Maybe you've never sort of come into a church building or maybe someone sent you a link. Maybe you're from a, another faith or no faith at all or you might be spiritual no matter who you are or where you're from, we're so glad that you're joining us this moment. Let's just be truly honest. These are unprecedented and scary times. We are living at this moment through a pandemic, and at the same time the pandemic is spreading, we are living through a global financial crisis. And of course, we are shocked by the amount of public closings that are taking place in our city, in our country, and around the world of course, with 24-hour news coverage and social media, it even causes more anxiety and panic. And of course, we're not even sure what's going to happen in the next hour, the next five hours, the next day, or the next week. But today, I want to share with you the truth of our faith. I want to preach on hope. And why I'm smiling is because I actually wrote this sermon three weeks ago to end our current series. And it's all about hope. It's actually about the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, we have been wrestling through eternity and death and destiny. And what a perfect time for us now to talk about this. Over the last two weeks, our congregation, of course, like all of you, have been wrestling through the financial implications and the shutdowns and, and the spread of the coronavirus. But also at the same time, we've been walking through the teachings of Scripture and the teachings of Jesus on two very actually difficult topics, the issue of judgment and the issue of hell. But now we come to the other side. We come to the, the good news. We come to the declaration that there is hope and there is a new heavens and a new earth. Now, as we get going today, let me begin to undo some wrong views of our hope and what heaven actually is. When most people think about heaven, they think about big fluffy clouds or they think about 17th century little chubby overweight angels who are floating somewhere and we don't even know why they're there or why they're even overweight. And then most of us now, at least within the Canadian context, think about Philadelphia cream cheese ads. They've done very well with their advertising where heaven is some ethereal place where we're all sitting on clouds and we're eating weird forms of cream cheese. And suddenly every human being has wings and suddenly we're angels, even though they're different than us. Many other people, when they think about heaven, presume an eternal retirement, just hanging out and doing nothing for the rest of your life, or golf. Well, all of this is actually profoundly wrong and actually takes away from the real hope we have. And so as Jesus neared the end of his life, let me start with his words. When he said this in John 14, 1, and man, are these words we need at this moment. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. Uh, Jesus, notice, is not saying, don't worry. Jesus is not calling us to be fake or fraud or dismiss things. The experience of distress is real. Worry is actually part of being human. It's part of living in a broken world, and we're really experiencing that now. But context is king here. Jesus is saying, don't let your hearts be troubled by me going away, because I'm going to still be with you by my spirit. Keep on believing in me. Now notice, Sanctus, this is important. Hear the words of Jesus. See how personal they are. Personal faith and a personal Lord brings personal peace. These people originally hearing this were not living on hearsay. They, they were not talking about trusting someone they did not know. They knew him. 
And that's true for all of us. Real relationships are based not just on knowing the person, but trusting the person. So Jesus says, keep on walking with the one you already know, me. Now let's stop because there's so many different people joining us here today from different backgrounds. Let's stop and remind ourselves what a Christian understanding of faith, of belief is. It's informed trust. We don't just acknowledge truth as truth. It means to trust someone, to rely on someone, to derive confidence from someone or something. So if you actually say that you believe in Jesus Christ, you're actually saying, I really personally know him. I've met him. I trust him. I've placed my complete confidence in him. Everything I know about this life and what happens just before my death and at my death and after my death depends on Jesus. So not only can we have peace, even during a pandemic, even during a financial crisis, we can have peace because we know Jesus. We know he's in control. We know he's risen from the dead. We know him personally. We know he's never going to leave us or forsake us because his spirit's in us. But Jesus, when he said this in John 14, went farther. He didn't just talk about now. In our world, where there wasn't a lot of peace, Jesus said, I'm with you. But then he went farther to the not yet. And he said in John, John 14 too, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it was not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I'm going. Home is the metaphor Jesus chooses to use about heaven. Don't be so North American that you think that Jesus is building all of us some large mansion in the by and by. There's no room for the so-called American dream here. No, no. The image is home. Abode, abide, remain. It's about his presence. It's not as much about the place, though we're going to talk about this. The place is incredible. It's actually about the person you're going to find in the place. See, in Jesus' culture, you might not know this, when men got engaged to women, there was a betrothal period, and it could last over a year. So they got engaged, and then he would leave and probably not even see his future bride, and he would go to his dad's house, and he'd build an extension on his father's house. And when the job was done, he would come back, and then he'd marry his wife, and then take his wife to his father's home and live in the extension. And that's what Jesus says. I'm going to go do this for you. I'm going to the new place and I'm going to build this permanent residence. And it can never be removed. It can never be stolen. It never can be taken. It can never be lost because it's from God and it's for God and his people to live together. I mean, this is what we all long for. Even in times of non-crisis, but especially right now, like a global pandemic. And should I even be near people? Don't we all want security? Don't we all want permanence? Don't we want safety and presence? And don't we want love? We see this even in non-moments of crisis in our politics, in our philosophy, in our art, in our music, the deep, deep desire to be fulfilled. C.S. Lewis called this the inconsolable longing. He writes, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering in our heart of hearts, do we desire anything else? It is the secret signature of each soul, the unappeasable want, the thing we desire before we meet our wife or husband or friends or choose our work, which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when our mind no longer knows spouse, friend, or work. Paul Turnier, in his book, A Place for You, says these words, if as a child you did not know a secure home, it is very likely that when you walk through life, no matter where your home is, you will never feel at home. 
On the other hand, if you as a child had a secure home, wherever you go, it will be home. See, this is the great hope we have as Christians, even right now. This is the truth about Jesus, what he's already placed in us. Jesus is home for us in the now and the not yet. And if you don't want Jesus here and you don't love him here and you don't walk with him here, trust me, you won't want him there. But if you love him here and you want him here and you're in relationship with him here, then the new heavens and the new earth, they're going to be so wonderful because he is there. That's the Christian hope. You also may be where I am. So many around us as Christians, they don't understand why we are what we are. Why we live for Jesus and sing to Jesus and give to Jesus and sacrifice our mind, money and our time for Jesus. How our whole life is about Jesus. A person we have not yet met in the visible. Yet for us who know him, there's so much peace and a desire from him. And we don't just want a perfect place, though that's coming we want to walk with the perfect person living in the perfect place who's promised to come back for us. If you read the Bible, there's over 318 direct or indirect references to Jesus coming back to be personally with us. So then we need to ask this question, just like we did last week when we were wrestling down with a difficult topic of hell. Well, in the opposite, where in the Bible can I read what the new heavens and the new earth are going to look like and feel like? Well, you've got to go to the end. The book of Revelation where you find the most vivid and magnificent and evocative language to, to describe the final things to come. And as we go through this, notice it's not unfamiliar. It's not strange. It's not weird. It's not some unknown cloud-lit place. No, it's going to be home. It's going to be home. The best description is found in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and the earth, first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. This is critical. So many of us, like I've already shared, think that heaven is transcendent and otherworldly and only spiritual and ethereal. No. God at the beginning in Genesis created the heavens and the earth and said they were good. We as human beings are made in the image of God and we're both physical and we're spiritual. We have bodies and souls. Our real person inside is not our soul and our body is some cage. No, 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 we are one thing. Jesus is fully God and fully human. We're gonna celebrate a few weeks Easter where Jesus didn't just spiritually come back from the dead. No, no, he physically came back from the dead. Capital R reality is physical and spiritual and so when God makes all things new in the end, our hope is found physically and spiritually in the new heavens and the new earth. I love when one person said heaven and earth are polarities. They designate two poles of one material reality, neither which can exist with the other like north and south, which hold together everything between them. Now go back to that verse. It says the first heaven and the first earth, they passed away. Peter outlined it like this in 2 Peter 3.10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Now there's been a struggle by Christians for 2,000 years <clears throat> whether the heavens and the earth will be completely destroyed or just renewed. Will they be replaced or renewed? Those who say they will be renewed can't imagine God literally destroying what he said was very good, even though it's now marred. One church father basically says that God at the end of time is going to pull filth out of creation, like throwing off a dirty old garment. 
Others said it's not about obliteration, it's renewal. Think about a forest fire. If you work with people or know people that work in that industry, they will tell you that though forest fires can be incredibly damaging, they're actually much of the time needed because they burn through through a forest. And as they burn through the forest, all the impurities that are stopping new life from growing are removed. So the image at the end of time is this, that God is going to burn, purify his creation, take all the filth out, and renew what is. Let me read this again. Then there was a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. That's that weird little phrase. Remember we talked about it at Christmas and in our Jonah series? And we found out within the Hebrew mindset, the sea symbolized evil, the powers of chaos, actually Satan, Lucifer, the demonic, those that have tempted and possessed and attacked and resisted God and his people and humans. But here's the point. They're now gone. In the new heaven and the new earth, they're gone. The war is won. That time, the world's going to be able to sing and shout and laugh and sit quietly with a smile because the war is over. Some of you should be saying amen somewhere in some living room. Now, before we keep going... Let's just get a real clear picture, letting the scriptures, not us or, or what we've thought about or what the media has told us, let's find out what heaven's really like. Randy Acorn in his book on heaven really works out the things we assume that are not true. We assume, of course, that heaven will be non-earthly, but it says there will be what? A new earth. We assume it will be unfamiliar, but actually we're told it will be familiar. We assume that we're going to be disembodied, some weird spirits floating up in some cream cheese ad. No, no, no. Jesus was physically risen from the dead. We will be physically resurrected from the dead. We will recognize each other. We will be embodied. We assume it's going to be foreign. The Bible says it's going to be home. We assume it's going to be static. The Bible says it's going to be dynamic. We assume there's going to be no learning and no discovery. But actually, if you read the Bible carefully, it says eternity is going to be filled with learning and discovery. We assume it's going to be so boring. The Bible says it's going to be fascinating. We assume that we're going to have no desire at all, but actually for all eternity is going to be a continuous fulfillment of godly desire. Well, as you keep reading, the image changes and suddenly, unexpectedly, at the center of the new heavens and the new earth, we find a large, massive city. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed as for her husband. Here's the thing we got to catch. We're not going to live up there. We're going to live down here. But the heavens will be present like the fourth dimension. All the hidden will be visible all at once, interacting. This coming of this great holy city will happen. It's the great symbol of the new order of humanity and the gathering of the saints. Now, lots of us, even during actually this pandemic, we're like, man, I don't think a city is what I want to think about when I think about my hope. I mean, we equate cities with what? Noise and self-assertion and forgetfulness and deceit and big and violent and impersonal Most of us never considered that eternity would be a city, but it will be. I love what Eugene Peterson wrote when he said, heaven surely should get us as far away from cities as possible. I mean, haven't we had enough of cities on earth? Don't we deserve what we long for? Many people want to go to heaven like they go to Florida. They want the weather to be an improvement and the people to be decent. But the biblical heaven is not some nice environment far removed from the stress of a hard city. It's the invasion of our cities by the city. 
We enter heaven by not escaping what we don't like, but by the sanctification of the place that God has placed us already. There is no hint of escapism in St. John's heaven. This is, some not, this is not some long eternal weekend away from the responsibilities of employment and citizenship, but the intensification and the healing of them. Heaven is formed of the dirty streets and the murderous alleys and the adulterous bedrooms and the, and the corrupt courts and the hypocritical synagogues and the commercialized churches and the thieving tax collectors and the traitorous, traitorous disciples. It's a city, but now, ah, it's different. It's a holy city. In the city, did you catch it, was described as a bride? beautifully dressed for her husband. And see, this gets back to already being in love with the person. Heaven and the new earth is about the person. And we, who are Christians from every century, from every ethnic background, will finally be gathered together. And we, who've tried to remain faithful in sickness and in good times, in trials and temptations, we're going to finally see the one that we love. It says in verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with people, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. See, the fulfillment of what we've sung and chanted, written and sung for generations will take place. What does the psalm say? Psalm 63, 1, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 27, 4, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is the one thing I seek, that I would dwell in the house of God all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of God and to seek him in his temple. See, the cry of the human heart, but the cry of a believer even more is to see God, know God, to love God and have God love us back and to experience him with all five of our senses. As one said, heaven is about meeting God first, hanging out with each other second, and living at our callings third. Oh, don't misunderstand. We're going to be able to sit with Noah or Moses or David or Esther or Ruth and ask them all the questions. Many of us who are Christians have lost loved ones and we can't wait to see them. Maybe it was a son who unexpectedly passed away or a daughter or, or, or a grandmother or a great-grandmother or a grandfather you'd never met but loved Jesus. Sure, we're going to do all of that, but trust me when I tell you. When we enter into that space and place, you won't be looking for even your wife. Because the person that you're going to see first and foremost is Jesus. And he's the one we want and he's our hope. It says that this dwelling is permanent. It's heavenly and earthly. Oh, and by the way, it's not empty. It's filled with people. From every background, Revelation 7, 9. And there I looked and before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne in front, and in front of the Lamb. In a book called The Happiness of Heaven, published in 1871, a Roman Catholic priest tells of a kind-hearted king, he uses this image, who finds a blind, destitute orphan boy while hunting in a forest. The king decides to adopt him, takes him into his palace, makes him a son, provides care for him. He sees the boy uh, receives the finest education. And of course, the boy is extremely grateful. He loves this king, his new dad. And he loves him with his whole heart. When the boy turns 20, unexpectedly, they find out they can operate on his eyes. And a surgeon performs the operation. And he'll be able to see for the very first time. The boy wants a starving orphan has for some years now been a royal prince at home in the king's palace. But something wonderful has happened, something greater than the magnificent food or the amazing gardens or the profound libraries or the music or the wonders of the palace. 
the boy is able to see the father he loves. This is what he writes. I will not to attempt to describe. It's old English. The joys that will overwhelm this fortunate young man when he first sees that king who's funny. Manly beauty and goodness and power and magnificence he's heard about but not seen. I will not attempt to describe the joys that will fill the soul when he beholds his own personal beauty and his own magnificence of his, priestly, of his princely garments that he's heard so much about but could not see. Much less will I attempt to paint the picture of the exquisite and unspeakable happiness when he sees his adopted family and he has all the pleasures, not experientially alone, but sees them. This will be such a beautiful vision for him. And then one writes, the boy's rescue by his father is so similar to our experience as Christians at our conversion. We come to know God's love and enjoy his presence now. And when we die, we'll be with the Lord. We talked about this last week. And that will be wonderful. But it's uncertain if we'll see God's face fully. The great day we await for is the establishing of the new heavens and the new earth. Where we, were, we are told as resurrected beings, we will actually see God's face. C.S. Lewis, writing on heaven, said, We're afraid that heaven's a bribe sometimes. That if we make it our goal, we'll no longer be interested. But it's not so. Heaven offers nothing that a mercenary soul can even desire. It is safe to tell the pure in heart they shall see God. For only the pure in heart want to see God. See, this gets back to our hope at this moment, right now. And the question is, if the sight and call of Jesus is not wanted or desired here, right now, in good times, let alone during a pandemic, you won't want it there. If you're not in love with Jesus here and in relationship with Jesus here, then you're going to hate heaven because heaven's all about him. It's a husband and a wife connecting. This is all about love and wanting to be home with someone you've loved and has loved you your whole life. Oh, but the Bible does talk about the environment, the place, and what it will be like. And it says in Revelation 21.4, he's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The old order of things has passed away. If there's a verse for us right now, it's this. No more tears. No more loss, no more regret, no more uh, uh, unfulfilled dreams, no more death, no long goodbyes, no expected death or unexpected death. No one's going to lose a friend again or a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister or an uncle. No, no it's done. There will be no hole in our hearts anymore because of loss. There will be no more mourning no more grief, no more bereavement, no more sorrow, no more sadness, and there will be no more pain, no more disease left, no AIDS, no cancer, no, no viruses, no mental disorders, no self-hate, no more self-image issues, no pain of abuse, no pain of terrible words. There's going to be no need for doctors, no need for counselors, no need for police officers, no need for the military. It's done. And if you really want to know how profound this is, just turn over to the next chapter and see what's at the center of the city. It says in Revelation 22:1, an angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing 
of the nations. Oh, you've got one throne, and that's God's throne, and yet Jesus is sitting on it because he's equal with God. And then it says that this profound, beautiful river is flowing from it in the middle of this garden, which is in the middle of the city. And why does that matter? Well, who wrote Revelation? John wrote Revelation. He also wrote the Gospel of John. And what did he write down when Jesus was speaking? It says in John 7, 38, whoever believes in Jesus, in me, as the Bible says, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, he meant the Spirit. So here's the profound thing. In the middle of the new heavens and the new earth, you've got God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, there fully for us at the center, and we get to know him. And what is given back to us? The tree of life. Remember Adam and Eve, when they sinned, there was two trees in the garden that were specific. There was the tree of life and the tree of good and evil. They were allowed to eat from the tree of life, which gave eternity, but the tree of good and evil, they were not. When they ate that, God stepped in. It says in Genesis 3.22, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were driven out. And in judgment, God gives mercy. Why? Because he did not want us to live eternally damned. If we ate from both trees, we'd be done. He removes us. And at the end of time, he restores Eden in the middle of the city and gives back the tree of life so we will eternally live with each other and with God and we will be healed. It says, and there will be no more night. No more shadow of death. No shadow of any sort. No dark night of the soul. No dark ages of history. No tragedy, no death. No sins, no funeral. No hiddenness, no drug cartels. No slavery anymore. No abuse. No more war. No more corporations ripping off people. No more infighting. No more killing. No more stealing. It's done. It's done. If you flip back to Revelation 21, it ends by Jesus just saying, I am making everything new. In this moment of global fear, this is the foundation of Christian hope. We who personally know Jesus and trust in him and have accepted his work for us, this is what keeps us going in good times, in great times, in bad times, and in terrible times. When life makes sense, this gives us hope. When we don't get the answers, this gives us hope. When we sort of have the answers, this gives us hope. When we are unsure, this gives us hope because his promise is true. No tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain, no night, no curse. And all the sickness, and all the abuse, and all the injustice, and all the failed dreams, and everything is going to be restored and reversed. This gives us hope the rest of the world just does not get. Our hope is in Jesus and his work, and our hope is in the environment he's building. Second, and and I want you to lean in, especially if you're a Christian, many of us wonder if we're going to get there. (laughs) And I want you to just quote once again that Eugene Peterson phrase. Heaven is formed out of dirty streets and murderous alleys, and adulterous bedrooms, and corrupt courts, and hypocritical synagogues, and commercialized churches, and thieving tax collectors, and traitorous disciples, a city, and yet now a holy city. Another wrote it like this. The city coming down from God means the eternal blessedness isn't an achievement of people, but a gift from God. Let me put it this way. It's the opposite of Babel. Hear this if you wonder if Jesus really loves you, and has really accepted you, 
even though you're a follower of Jesus. This city is made up of struggling and questioning people. Entrance has never been based on what you do or who you are, but who you trust in and who you know. If you've already called Jesus Savior and Lord and you see evidence of that relationship being worked out, no matter your temptations, no matter your struggles, you're going to live with Jesus, with me and many others in that new city, in the new heavens and the new earth. So many of you that are hanging out with us, you do regularly actually in our church, but even now virtually and globally, you might be from another faith, You might have the title Christian, but you don't really follow. You might be spiritual, but not religious or agnostic or atheistic. What would God be saying to you at this moment online? There was a pastor named Andrew who lived about 1,400 years ago, was speaking to a mixed crowd, just like us. And when he preached this, I thought it was a good old quote because it actually summarizes not just this message, but the last two. And by the way, if you have not joined us before or you weren't there, you need to go back to our podcast and listen to the first two, judgment, hell, and then heaven. It gives you the whole picture. But I love when he said this, the God who thirsts after our salvation wants us to be known, urges us in every way, both through kindness and through anger towards inheritance and blessing. He brings now before your eyes the brightness of this heavenly city and the dark, painful reality of hell. So whether through a desire for eternal bliss or through fear of wrath, we might see there is an opportunity to acquire the good and the rest we all need. God at this moment comes and he invites you to actually allow you to invite him into your life. No death, no night, no fear, freedom. As one said, the gospel of freedom says only through Jesus can we be brought back into friendship with God and each other because he's the only one that's dealt with our sin in the first place. All you need to do, no matter where you are, no matter what living room or car you're in or no matter what country you're in, listen, all you must say is, Jesus, I believe you died for the sins of the world. Jesus, I believe that you have the power to forgive me. Jesus, I want to know you now and I want to know you greater in the new heavens and the new earth. I want you to lead my life. I repent in trusting to any other religion or any other background. And I'm realizing during this pandemic, religion and money and beauty or age or wisdom or education don't mean very much when death comes close. I actually want you to save me. I want you to be my Lord. Just say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Change me. Let me end not only this sermon. Let me end this whole series with a series of questions that I don't want you just to reflect on in the next hour, but over the next few days. Because these are the critical questions that we need to wrestle with. So this isn't just like, oh, I learned something new, but this changes how I live life. Here's the first question. Do I daily reflect on my own mortality? Lots of us three weeks ago, I don't think were. And now a lot of us are. Do I daily reflect on the idea I'm going to die? Not to be obsessive about it, but to realize that actually this is coming to an end. And there is a part two. Here's another question. Do I realize there are only two destinations? Heaven and hell. And that I and every person I've known will be going to one or the other. And how does that change? Do I daily remind myself this world is not fully my home as it is and that everything in the end will burn, leaving only what is eternal? How does it change what I buy, how I act, what I think of it? Do I daily recognize my choices and my actions have a direct influence on the world to come? We talked about that two weeks ago. Do I daily realize that my life is actually being examined by God, the audience of one, and that his appraisal of my life will ultimately 
matter. Like really, him and no one else. And lastly, and this is so important as I come to an end in this beautiful, profound, hope-giving, yet scary moment. Our hope as Christians is in the idea that Jesus actually rose from the dead and that Jesus promised us that he's going to prepare a place for us and we who love him are actually going to be with him for real. The one that you love, the one that you've prayed to, the one that you've struggled for, the one that you've actually denied things in your life because you've chosen to love him more, the one you've wondered with and wrestled with and questioned and sung to and gave to, you're finally going to see him face to face. And so no matter what happens in the next 24 hours or in the next week or the next five weeks, if things get just fine or they get really, really scary and worse than they are now, just remember, as Christians, Jesus promised he'd never leave us or forsake us. As Christians, Jesus has overcome disease, death, and and the demonic through his resurrection. And Jesus has declared to us, we're going to be with him fully one day. So would you just take a moment as we pray together to walk all of this through? Number one, thanks God that you're in control. And in this time of fear and wondering and global wondering, thanks that you are with us and you haven't left us or forsake us. Father and Son, you call the Holy Spirit the Comforter, so I pray the Holy Spirit would uh, be on all who are listening right now and would find real godly comfort. Here's the next thing I pray. I pray that you would help us as Christians to really root our hope, not in our finances or our beauty or our education or our families or our savings, but in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. There are some who have never met you. And if you've never met Jesus, you just say right now, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I repent. I believe you died and rose again. Come into my life. I want life now and I want eternal life. And lastly, here's what we want to pray. God, help us as Christians in this moment, not to be hoarding or panicking, but to love God and love our neighbor and display the hope we actually have to those around us. I pray for Sanctus Church, but I pray for the church around the world to profoundly show our world why actually the hope we have is real and it's true and it's gonna last. Thanks, Jesus, you're with us in this time of crisis. Keep helping us to love you and love others. In Jesus' name, amen.